Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Hi, I'm Anna Doty, curator of the Muda Museum and director of the Muda Research Institute. And today I'll be talking about the Muda Research Institute looking to the past to improve our future. I always like to give the goals of my lecture uh, so you can uh, see when I'm not achieving them, but I definitely try. So I'm going to give a brief overview of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, uh, the Muda Museum, and a little bit about our collection so you have a frame of reference. We're then going to discuss uh, the creation of the Muda Research Institute. Why did we do it? How did we do it? Um, and then we're going to talk about a few of our ongoing projects, uh, things that we are currently working on uh, that involve our wonderfully disturbingly informative collection. And of course, the uh, we always like to try to slightly disturb you. That's one of our goals. Now, first, I have to talk a little bit about the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Without the college, there would be no Mutter Museum. Uh, so we always like to give a little bit of reference about that. Um, uh, here in the United States, we often get very confused people who think we're a medical school. And of course, we're not. You know, we are a professional society of mainly physicians, about 1,500 or so, uh, mostly located in Philadelphia, although we do have physicians abroad. And uh, we are the oldest professional medical institution in continuous operation in the United States. We started in 1787, uh, which uh, sounds very, very old to us, uh, but maybe not so much to other people. Now, the College of Physicians, like I said, was a, a professional society. And uh, a little bit, we started in 1787, like I said, but the Mutter Museum did not come around until after the 1860s. And it became, and the reason it's called the Mutter Museum is because of this handsome gentleman right here, Dr. Thomas Dent Mutter. Now you'll notice there's an umlaut over the U. Uh, so that is why we are not the Mutter Museum, but the Mutter Museum. Um, I've been told that I do not pronounce that correctly uh, if it were the German word, but we, we do our best. Um, so unfortunately, he found himself, he was one of our fellows, he found himself in ill health. This was around uh, 1858. And previously, he had been a very, very popular uh, professor of medicine at what is now Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. So he unfortunately had to retire and he decided to bequeath his entire teaching collection to us. And that's very important because he had amassed this collection over decades of teaching, uh, about 1,700 specimens, objects, things like that. And that's why it's called the Muda Museum. He also did give us a, uh, a substantial endowment of about $30,000, which in today's currency is about three quarters of a million dollars. He did have one stipulation, which was if we were to take his collection, we had to build a fireproof building to house it. Very smart because, of course, a lot of alcohol-based um, wet specimens, so fireproof building is always a good idea. Unfortunately, he died in 1859, and we were unable to complete the building until around 1863. So the Mutter Museum has been open since 1863, and the College of Physicians since 1787. Those are our important dates. Now, here is an overview picture of the main gallery of the Mutter Museum. And you'll see uh, 
that it is in keeping with the what is considered to be the European uh, salon style or cabinet format. Uh, there's also the mezzanine. Uh, I've been to many medical museums uh, around the world, and, and the mezzanine seems to be a, a very consistent uh, architectural detail that I see in many of them. The Muda Museum is grouped in this main category, uh, mostly along the lines of content, uh, anatomical body system, things like that. And uh, we've been in this kind of cabinetry style uh, situation since we opened. In fact, these cabinets uh, are original to the first building that we had, the one that opened in 1863. Uh, that was at a different location than where we are now. Uh, but the cabinets, uh, at least some of them, were brought over to this new location. The building that we're currently in, uh, we've inhabited since about 1910, and so we've been there. We've been there ever since. It was built for us too. So, very briefly, uh, I want to go over some of the types of specimens and objects we have in the collection. And this is important to kind of give you uh, an overview of the, just the, the breadth of the different types of things that we have. Mindful that the intent and the use for all of these collections uh, has always been education. So, that's very important. So, wet specimens, I think these are the ones that we are most known for. Um, that's the thing that people kind of associate with us. Uh, one of the most things that, that they do. And we do, we have over 1,300 of these wet specimens. And they go by many terms. I believe uh, in, in the UK, there's some, they're referred to as potted specimens, uh, or we also can call them fluid preserved specimens. And again, the wet specimen, it's just any biological object that's preserved using a liquid fixative. Now, our Wet specimens go back uh, to the early 1800s in terms of our provenance. And of course, that predates the creation of formalin or formaldehyde. And what's very interesting is some of our specimens uh, were, were sealed up in their containers prior to the creation of formaldehyde and were never have never been opened since. Uh, now, some of our specimens uh, come to us uh, in formaldehyde and then we have to uh, exchange the fluid because we do not put anything on display that's in formaldehyde or formalin uh, because that, of course, is uh, carcinogenic. It's a caustic. And so um, all of our specimens are in a 70 to 30 alcohol water uh, preserving solution. Osteological specimens, human bone specimens, of course, we have many thousands of those as well. And they're in a variety of different um, presentations. We have fully articulated specimens. We have uh, non-articulated specimens, loose bones, things like that. Dried specimens, uh, very, very self-explanatory. They have been desiccated. They've been dried out. This is our megacolon. It is, to my knowledge, and I always kind of give that a little caveat, the largest human colon on display in the world. It's uh, eight feet, four inches long. It's about a foot and a half in diameter at the time of death. It held approximately 40 pounds of fecal material. Uh, that being said, if anybody has a larger one uh, on display, please let me know and I will adjust my talk accordingly. Models, very important, very important. Uh, we always like to stress that our anatomical models uh, are, are very, very important when it comes to uh, education, the teaching of medicine. And we have a lot of very different specific types of models. Again, each one was used for a different uh, purpose. Now, sometimes we have models 
that were used to capture um, a specimen, for instance, that we were unable to to keep. A good example would be uh, to my to my right at the top. That is the uh, death cast of Chang and Ang Bunker. They um, were very famous conjoined twins. Uh, their uh, upon their death, their wives gave us the college permission to conduct an autopsy, but we were not able to keep their bodies afterwards. So they did this cast to kind of uh, get their form for educational purposes. Uh, at the bottom there, you'll see one of our uh, wax models showing uh, skin pathology, dermatolo dermatological conditions. Again, very, very important. Um, we've actually had some negative reviews on our, our Yelp sites and things like that saying we've got too many fakes, you know, not real wet specimens. And, uh, you know, we take exception to that in the sense that these wax models are extraordinarily important. They are um, over 150 years old and they were uh, for, designed for a very specific reason. Uh, wet specimens, don't get me wrong, I love the wet specimens. They're very, very important. However, when you put a biological specimen in a liquid preserving solution, uh, in most cases, that specimen, especially if it's uh, something that involves skin, will lose its original color and you won't be able to get a really accurate idea of the texture. And that's very important when you're working with dermatological conditions. Uh, you need to have an accurate representation of color, of texture uh, for in order to learn more about it and to hopefully have a correct diagnosis if you're uh, a medical student to learn about that. Now, the uh, the model that is in the center of the hand, uh, that is actually about five to seven times larger than the size of a normal human adult human hand. This was used in the situations where you have students, uh, medical students in a kind of classroom with the stacked seating, the kind of stadium seating. And, uh, you know, you have the poor, the, the, the unfortunate students who are at the very top uh, would not be able to see very well. Of course, this is before PowerPoints, before uh, overhead projection in most cases. And so if the professor was going to be uh, doing a um, dissection on an average, you know, hand, human hand, people up top would, would not be able to see anything. So these larger um, models, these uh, often paper mache, they're, we, they're called their clastic models. They come apart. Uh, and so they could be like virtually uh, dissected and you could see the anatomical structures underneath. Very important. Again, uh, all harkens back to teaching. And that is the um, mission of the Muda Museum is to teach. And I think it's, it's very important to understand the different uh, ways in which we, we do that. Of course, we have instruments, chemicals and drugs, uh, you know, all sorts of different things like that as well. Uh, most of them have been donated by our physician fellows at some point in the other. And I have to, I, one of my favorites, of course, is uh, this bottle of pills that's in the center here. I just, first of all, I adore the color. That's one of my, one of my favorite colors. And hopefully you can see the contents of this, uh, of this particular bottle. It has uh, digitalis, strychnine, nitroglycerin, and of course, cactus, because cactus. Just love looking at that. And, and of course, we just have so many other things that might not necessarily uh, fit into the um, you know, specific uh, topics like our soap lady. She's, our, she's a one-off. She's a one, 
uh, saponified human body. Um, we have large objects, of course, too, like our iron lung. We have an amazing collection of historical medical photographs. And then we're also still collecting, we'll go into that a little bit, but uh, this uh, image down here of this skull, uh, it's actually created using over a hundred acrylic preserved brain slices. So they are, um, they're not dead, they're not dried, um, they're not wet specimens per se, in the sense that they're not in a liquid preserving solution, but they are still uh, wet-ish, I guess. And then they're encased in this plastic-based acrylic perspex uh, type of material. Um, so they're shelf stable. They don't need to be refrigerated. Uh, they're very unique. So we had to actually, when we acquired them, had to create in our database a separate category to describe them, which is always new, always interesting. Um, and like I mentioned, some are old and some are new. What do I mean by that? Well, obviously we have some specimens that um, are well over 150 years old. The bulk, the main uh, bulk of our collection, I would say is mid 19th century, because that was really the heyday of, of our particular uh, collecting time period. So Dr. Mooter, of course, and our physicians, you know, they, they, they really uh, did the bulk of the donation of our core collection, um, I would say, you know, again, uh, 18, 1863 to maybe the end of uh, the 1800s, early 20th century. Of course, some of the objects themselves, of course, are very old. So uh, to the left, you see an Assyrian medical tablet. This is a prescription tablet, um, kind of detailing the types of ingredients that you would need to relieve a certain condition. I believe one of those ingredients is beer. Uh, we have uh, specimens and uh, donations that come to us that are, are new for us, but they are older um, specimens. A good example would be uh, up in the top middle, we have uh, brain slides from Albert Einstein. And of course, he passed away in about 1955. Um, so these slides date to about that time period, but they did not come into our collection until 2011. Uh, and we're actually, uh, we are still actively collecting. And um, I know some some uh, medical uh, museums are still collecting. Um, not not a lot, to my knowledge, uh, are, are actively collecting, but we are. And one of the things as curator that I'm very interested in collecting is uh, representations of public health issues that are uh, 20th and 21st century public health concerns, things like that. Um, our collection is uh, wonderfully represented in the public health issues of the mid 19th century. So we have, you know, a lot of syphilis, a lot of tuberculosis, infectious diseases, things like that. Um, I'm trying to actively collect uh, representations of the same uh, public health issues, but that are very uh, prevalent in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, so a good, and, and like I mentioned, we do have, uh, you know, active, uh, you know, donations coming in. People will contact us and say, um, hi, I have this or that that I would like to donate. Uh, it's of course very different now. We are very, very careful about provenance. We wanna make sure that whatever we take into our collection, uh, it, it is um, not only legal, but ethical for us to do so. So we ask a lot of questions. So one of the things that are my favorite type of object to collect uh, are what I call primary donations. What do I mean by that? Well, um, if you personally have had a bit of your body removed, uh, I will uh, talk to you. You know, a good example for that is in the upper right-hand corner, you see that jar with the 
That's me holding my husband's gallbladder. So he had to have his gallbladder removed. And uh, I, of course, accompanied him to the doctor's appointment and uh, informed the doctor that after the gallbladder uh, was removed, I would be taking it. Um, I didn't ask. You'll notice I just informed him that I would be taking it. So that was that was an interesting. Uh, but I was able to do that. And uh, so we have that in our collection. Obviously, my husband agreed to that as well. I didn't. He was he was all for it. Um, but that's wonderful for us in the sense that there's no um, there's no doubt that the individual gave consent to have their body part, you know, uh, come into our collection because they're still alive. They sign all of the paperwork um, and then I'm able to interview them and ask them specific questions about um, how, you know, they came to have this body part removed. What was this thing? And, you know, whatever they're comfortable revealing, you know, we, we really like to gather all that information, that uh, primary source data, if you will, because we really, really do not have that in our other specimens. You know, the other specimens that are coming from the 19th century uh, the, the information that was obtained was really all about that specimen, not about the individual. And now we're very interesting. Uh, we're very interested to learn about both the specimen, the condition that the person had, but also about the individual, their medical narrative, if you will. Um, we have in the, in the bottom left-hand corner, that is my former boss, uh, former director of the Mutter Museum, Dr. Robert Hicks, not looking entirely happy uh, because he's holding a jar of picked human skin. Now, this is something that I've received a lot of, uh, you know, uh, teasing about over the years about why on earth would you accept uh, a jar of picked human skin? And for the record, I haven't accepted a jar of picked human skin. I've accepted three jars of picked human skin. So let us be clear about that. And the reason I accepted them is because it's, it's a very, very important educational specimen. It's very hard to use physical specimens to convey and properly illustrate a mental condition. But in this case, this picked human skin represents a condition, a condition that used to be called dermatillomania. And after the DSM volume five was published, it, the, the name has changed to, and I do not pronounce it correctly, I believe, but I believe it's something like excorision disorder. Uh, this is the compulsive need for a person to pick skin off their body. Um, and in this case, this individual approached me and uh, she lives in California and it picks the skin off of her feet and saves it because she does have this condition. Uh, but she has managed to um, control it to the point where she only picks the calluses off of her feet. Doesn't She does not cause herself any damage, but she wanted uh, to donate the skin to us to, to provide an illustration, a very, very effective illustration. Um, of what this condition is. And so what often happens is people will see this jar in our collection and they'll be like, oh my goodness, what is this? Um, and then they'll lean closer, they'll look at the label and then they're drawn into the, to the story, into the narrative of it. Uh, one of our most recent uh, acquisitions, one of our most recent donations uh, was uh, the one you'll see here, the skeleton. This is Carol Orzel. Now, Carol had a very, very rare condition called FOP, fiber dysplasia ossificans progressiva. It is uh, extraordinarily rare. There are only about 900 diagnosed cases in the world. And uh, Carol, uh, before she died, made arrangements that she wanted her skeleton donated to the museum. And so uh, I could give an entire hours long lecture just on the process 
and the and the journey that that we had to go through to to make this happen. Um, but we did. We were very happy to be able to uh, make her final wishes come true. Um, and we're very happy because that she made that ultimate decision to uh, donate her skeleton to us because it is um, a very it's just an absolute um, joy to to know that we honored her final wishes and we were able to do it in a way uh, that uh, hundreds of thousands of people hopefully will be able to to see her skeleton to learn about FOP. She was very, very um, active in educating about FOP during her lifetime. And that was what she wanted to be able to do after she died as well. So we were very happy to make that happen. So thank you, Carol. Now, some are borrowed. We we try not to have long-term loans come in, but we, we have done that over the past. So the one on the left is from an institute in Philadelphia called the Wistar Institute. And of course, we do have some extraordinarily rare objects as well. So the uh, device that you'll see to my right here is, uh, it's called a piezoelectric device. And I believe it was the first instrument ever used to measure radioactivity. And it was actually built by Marie and Pierre Curie. And this was donated to us by Marie Curie herself when she did her grand tour of the United States. So that is a very brief uh, overview of the College of Physicians, the Muda Museum and our collection. So now I'm going to shift focus and talk a little bit about what we are doing with our collection. Now, uh, prior to the uh, pandemic shutdown, we received on average about 188 visitors a year. Those visitors came and looked at our collection and were educated in a, in a passive way, you know, just by, by looking, which is great. We absolutely love that. It's very, very wonderful. But uh, we're also very committed to utilizing our collection for medical scientific research. And so the rest of my talk is going to shift and uh, discuss exactly some of the things that we're doing in that regard. So one of the, this all got started, the Muda Research Institute, the genesis of this institute started uh, way back in 2007 with uh, the cholera project. And I wish I had a more exciting name, but that didn't occur to me to do that at the time. Uh, but what long, again, I could talk for 45 minutes and I have on just the uh, origin of this story, how it came about. But basically what happened was uh, I got a phone call from a lovely uh, individual in Canada who wanted to know if I had any fluid preserved specimens of intestines of people who died of cholera. And they had apparently been calling all over the world uh, looking for these specific types of specimens had struck out. So they had already kind of sounded quite defeated when they had called me and said, well, we don't suppose you might have to, might have one of these. And uh, I looked at my database and I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have one of these. I have six of these. And uh, I believe they dropped the phone. Hello, hello. Um, but once they kind of regained their composure, they were extremely excited and said, we have a proposition for you. We would like to, to test this, uh, this intestinal specimen. And uh, I said, why? And they said, well, we are very interested in learning about the genetic differences of different cholera strains. So uh, it really started me down the path of learning more about infectious diseases. And 
Uh, we've had eight different pandemics uh, of cholera that we know about. And uh, we're currently, I believe, in our eighth pandemic of cholera. And uh, this goes back, you know, to the 1800s, you know, probably before that as well. Um, and of course, it's still a very, very serious public health concern in certain parts of the world. So it's very relevant. This isn't just a static 19th century disease that we don't have to worry about anymore. Uh, thousands of people die a year still of cholera. Um, the World Health Organization estimates about, you know, potentially up to 120,000 people uh, die a year due to cholera. Uh, and that, of course, when we say you, you die of cholera, you're, you're, we're talking about the bacterium um, Vibrio cholera. It, that is what, that is the, the, the active agent, the destructive uh, agent for, for the disease of cholera. And it has many different forms. Um, there, but the question is, which strain caused what pandemic? And here's the issue, is that cholera inhabits your intestines. Uh, when you die of cholera, um, when you die in, in general, one of the first uh, parts of your body that starts to decompose is your guts, is your, is your alimentary canal, if you will, your intestines, because you've got a living colony, uh, your microbiome of, of living organisms of bacteria and viruses and yeasts, and they're still alive. And then they'll start to just basically digest you uh, once you die. So what happens is you lose that, that potential DNA very quickly. And then that is not something that you find in the archaeological record because cholera kills you so quickly, it does not um, then go off into your, your skeletal system the way a different, another, another uh, condition, like another infectious disease like tuberculosis. You know, we can find tuberculosis in your skeleton. Really, as, as of right now, as, to, as far as I know, we have not been able to isolate cholera DNA from skeletons. So we really uh, were at the mercy of, of hoping that somebody had saved cholera, uh, you know, from, from a historical uh, outbreak. And so it just so happens that we had done that. And uh, we had specimens that dated to 1849. There was an outbreak of cholera in Philadelphia that killed over a thousand people. And one of our fellows, uh, you know, had the presence of mind to, to actually save sections of this cholera in alcohol. And that's important to note um, because they knew, obviously, they, they knew that cholera killed you via your, your intestines, via your, your, your digestive tract. But you have to remember 1849, they didn't know exactly what, they didn't understand that, that bacteria was the, the reason for this. But uh, our, our fellow, Dr. John Neal, said, well, I'm not exactly sure the details, but I'm going to save these sections because I want to see if um, I can see any gross differences in the intestinal systems or the, any kind of lesions, things like that, using a microscope. And he was one of the first people in the United States to actually look at these specimens under a microscope. So what were the goals of, of collecting and, and sampling the, uh, the specimen? Well, they really wanted to find out, uh, the researchers, uh, what, what specific strain of, of, of cholera was responsible for causing these early uh, pandemics and uh, how will the and then hopefully they can get that how will this um, historical strain of cholera um, how will that uh, look compared to the modern uh, strains of cholera that are going on right now that are still active right now 
So what we did is uh, we actually created a clean room, a sterile room uh, in situ at the Muda Museum. And I remember at this point we were not uh, set up. We, weren't, we did not have any scientific labs. We didn't have anything like that. Uh, we did have a lot of bleach and we had uh, an empty room at the time. So we actually uh, set up, you know, a, a clean room such as it was. And you can see here, it's, there's some art in the background that was going to go up on the wall for an exhibit. We did the best we could. Um, we, and then they opened up the jar and they took small samples from that. And uh, as I mentioned that this, these, these were bottled prior to the invention of formalin and I should, let me see if I can go back. You can see here, looking at the top two uh, specimen jars here, those were, um, they used a pig's bladder, a disc of lead, some parchment type paper, and some black pitch to seal the jar closed. They would put the intestine in, fill it with alcohol, and then use this type of, uh, these types of materials to seal these jars. And why am I specific about that? Well, you just can't unscrew this jar, mess with the specimen and, and, and screw it back on and nobody would be the wiser. You know, we could tell by looking at this uh, type of sealed jar that these specimens had not been touched since they were first bottled, potted, what have you, in 1849. That's very important because, again, we knew that alcohol wasn't, uh, that um, formula wasn't invented at the time. And when we were doing the DNA analysis back in 2007, it was important uh, because any uh, any interaction with formalin could uh, disrupt the DNA. So they were very happy that they had never been in contact with formalin or formaldehyde. So what happened? Well, we did, we took six samples, uh, or we took 12 samples from six specimens. Very, very small. Again, you don't need a lot of, of, of tissue to do this. And uh, what happened was one out of those 12 specimens actually yielded positive results. We weren't sure this was going to happen. You know, back in 2007, when they explained this to me, it sounded like something from Star Trek or something, again, in science fiction, but it happened. They were able to get the DNA of the cholera pathogen that was embedded in that, in that intestine. Uh, so not only was that extraordinarily cool, but we actually got some pretty um, nice papers. You know, we, we, we published our results in some journals that you may may recognize, the New England Journal of Medicine, Scientific Reports. And that was what really started us on the road uh, to, to creating the Muda Research Institute. That's what really made us say, hmm, you know, I don't think this is a one-off. I think our collection has more to give to the scientific and, and medical community. I think we can make a difference. Um, I think we can save lives, frankly. I think we can utilize this 19th century collection to save 21st century lives. And how are we gonna do it? One jar at a time. So that's what we decided to do. And of course, once we published it, you know, other people started to contact us um, about different, uh, about different research projects, but they also contacted us because they wanted to um, further investigate the cholera or some other uh, things like that. So we were approached with some other researchers who said, this is great. I should mention, we were able to sequence 96% of the genome of the cholera strain. And we were able to prove what strain it was that, that caused the pandemic in 1849. It was the classical strain, which was the, the prevailing 
uh, thought was that it was that, but until we did this, there was no empirical evidence to support that. It was just, we think that's what it is. Now, because of the work we did, we could say, yep, that's what it is, at least for this. But now that we knew that, that started opening up other questions, which is great. This often happens in, in science. You answer one question, 10 more questions get posed to you. And, and we love that. That's how you move forward. So the question that was presented is, okay, so now we know that it was the, the classical strain of cholera that caused these outbreaks in the 19th century. But we, we saw as we moved into the 20th century that a different strain of cholera took over, took precedence, was dominating. And that was called the El Tor uh, strain. Well, why? What happened to this uh, classical strain? Why did it lose dominance? Why did the El Tor strain become the more prominent um, uh, strain of cholera in the world? And so these researchers uh, here had that question. And again, they wanted to look to us to find the answers. So um, again, we decided that it would be worthwhile to uh, provide them with a tiny bit of tissue. And keep in mind that when we, when we do this, we don't do it lightly. We don't just say, oh, let's crack open a wet specimen, tear off a hunk for science. No, um, we are very, very um, strict about what we call destructive analysis. Uh, because we know that there's no going back. You will not get that piece of your specimen back. In, in And so you have to make darn sure that it is worthwhile. And it's also not going to be redundant to the work that's already been done. So these uh, these researchers made a, a very, very good argument to the fact that now that we know the genome sequence, we need to know more specifically about the uh, classical strain and, and especially to see about if it mutated in any way that rendered it less competitive uh, against other strains. And so we decided, okay, that seems to be a good uh, you know, use of the specimen. And so we, we allowed them to move forward with that. And as of right now, there is an article that is in, um, process, in the process of being reviewed for publication. So I can't really talk too much about the specifics of it. I wanna wait until the team presents it. All right, moving on to some other instances of uh, research. Uh, and in many cases uh, with research, sometimes things start accidentally. Again, that is my uh, former boss, Robert Hicks, there looking uh, oh so pleased. I love showing that, that picture of him. I wish I had more. I know I'm running short on time, so I can't give you the whole story. But long story short, you know, never leave your director unattended. Uh, I took my staff on a field trip to another medical museum about two hours to three hours away in, in uh, Washington, D.C. And while and then Robert was supposed to join us at the last minute, he decided not to. And uh, he took that time. To, he was supposed to be working on a paper. He uh, took another employee on a, a tour of one of our uh, collections areas. And it was there that uh, they were looking through our phlebotomy collection, our bloodletting collection. And uh, we had many, many cases there. He decided to open up one of the cases to show this uh, employee what a lancet looks like and how they how they did bloodletting at the time. And what fell out? Well, a smallpox scab. So he did what any, uh, any normal person would do. He put it on a paper plate and put it in his office and called me and told me to call the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. Um, no, I've never let him forget that. 
so what happened was very, very quickly, we got a nice callback from some very concerned people from the CDC and the Philadelphia Department of Public Health, um, who said, we'll be down tomorrow to, to assess the situation. And they did. They were very nice. And uh, ultimately, we ended up finding quite a few um, of these, these vaccination kits, these early vaccination kits that were um, just put in our bloodletting kits. Because if you looked at them um, not very carefully, they, they look like bloodletting kits. And uh, so that was fun. So th what they did is they took all of the uh, kits down to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, which is the capital of the CDC, is where their, their main headquarters is located, and uh, kept us appraised of the situation. And we, you can see here, this is some of the scabs that we found. And again, if you're looking at these containers, just from the outside, they look just like, just like a, a bloodletting container, but you open them up inside and you'll see that they have very specific um, accoutrement that are very uh, specific to to uh, vaccination rather than just bloodletting. Things like little little tin to hold the scabs, the the glass plates there that you can see uh, that would hold lymph, and of course the lancets using to use for vaccination. So they gathered up all of these uh, and sent them to Atlanta, and they kept us uh, kind of appraised of the situation. And the CDC is wonderful. They have a top state-of-the-art DNA lab for things like that. However, their DNA lab is not an ancient DNA lab. And that's very important. It's very different. A DNA lab that's set up to do modern DNA with fresh uh, material, um, let's say like a fresh blood sample or something like that, um, is may not be adequately set up and have the, the tools and the knowledge and the equipment to do ancient DNA extraction, which is uh, totally different. So the people at the CDC were very interested in knowing what type of smallpox vaccination material was used, what type, what orthopox, what other type of pox was used to vaccinate people against smallpox. And uh, we said, well, um, we actually had, know some people uh, up in Canada that could do that um, a lot better than you could because they have an ancient DNA lab. So they, we were surprised that the CDC actually allowed us to facilitate the shipment of the smallpox material from Atlanta to uh, our partners, which is the McMaster Ancient DNA Center in uh, Canada. They were the ones who did the work on the collar project, so we knew to call them. They were very, very excited. And uh, again, long story short is uh, we were able to get the um, DNA of the orthopox and uh, we were able, you know, we, again, can't give too much away, but I can tell you that our paper was just accepted for publication in a, a journal called Genome Biology, and hopefully it'll be coming out soon. So uh, you'll be able to get all the, the uh, details, but it was very, very exciting. And it's really inspired us to continue this research, to continue looking um, to our collections to find these things. And it's very important because this is what's very exciting. Not only, you saw the scab material that we had, so uh, the, the CDC obliterated most of the actual biological scab material when they did their initial DNA. So there wasn't much left of it when it got sent to Canada. But I said to them, I, I, I should mention I'm a, a forensic scientist by training. So I was saying, you know, from what I know about our collection, nothing was washed back, back in the day. Why don't we see if we can swab the, the lancet blades and see if there's any residual DNA. Because if we can get DNA 
from a alcohol preserved um, jar, you know, you know, jarred specimen with minute amount of, of trace DNA, maybe we can get DNA from the knife blade. Maybe we can get DNA from an empty smallpox scab container where there's no visible smallpox or, or no visible um, orthopox scabs in there. That doesn't mean they weren't then there. That not, doesn't mean there's not trace bits of it left. So uh, let's use some, some archaeoforensics, if you will. Let's, let's, let's try. And since it was our collection, um, we decided, you know, we, we kind of researched what kind of non-destructive sampling techniques can we use with the, um, these, these uh, objects, you know. And it was very exciting because we actually got results. I mean, they weren't as good results as they would have been from, like, the actual scab, but we got results, which was very, very excited. And, you know, what was really comforting and, and, and no, good to know is that the CDC, um, you know, approved of this of this. Um, of this research project, they, they were actually, um, they were very, uh, you know, encouraging of us because it helps them. The more information they have about historical strains, they can add that to their database. So it's definitely a mutually beneficial uh, type of thing. You know, we don't want to just do cool science for the sake of it because it's cool. I mean, you know, we want it to actually ultimately lead to some knowledge that could benefit. Um, and so that's one of the things we're very happy about. And to, to know now that we have the ability to do this in a non-destructive way, where we're not, we don't potentially have to obliterate a sample. Very, very exciting. So uh, again, like I mentioned, we'll be, we'll be uh, publishing this very soon in, um, in genome biology. So stay tuned for that. And uh, another thing we're working on is kind of a cross between a historical archaeological project and modern day scientific uh, projects. And uh, in Philadelphia, uh, I think it was 2016, 2017, um, we actually ended up rescuing a uh, cemetery population from a developer who was putting up an apartment building right in Center City, Philadelphia. And again, I don't have time to go into the details, but uh, long story short, you know, it, unfortunately in Philadelphia and in many parts of the United States, capitalism rules. And if you have um, a piece of land that is being developed by a private individual, so that this individual or corporation uh, owns the land and they are using just private money to build their apartment building or their whatever, meaning there's no federal, state, or local government funding associated with this project. Um, if they find human remains uh, in, in, in a historical context, there is nothing that they can, there is nothing they will do to intercede on behalf of that population, of that cemetery population. So that's what we found happening in this, um, in this situation uh, where, where the developer was um, found these human remains. They had bought a, a parcel of land that they knew had a cemetery in it, but that they were told and they found historical documents to indicate that that cemetery had been moved. Well, it hadn't, you know, they, they just did not move the individuals. They moved the tombstones, but they didn't move the individuals. So um, they started digging up human remains and they, and they were not uh, gentle with them. So when we got wind of this, uh, like I said, there was nothing legal we could do about that. We couldn't call any agency to, to make them stop. But what we did have the power of was the media. We have a lot of friends at the Mütter Museum that are uh, in the media, newspapers, magazines, TV, 
Um, and we called all of them and we said, hey, you know, do you want to know, you want a story about um, uh, desecration of human remains, destroying history, all these things? Um, we got you covered. So that's basically what we did. Or I should say we didn't do that. Somebody did it. It was an anonymous tip. So that's something that, so we were able to take um, custody and become the stewards. We did not own these individuals. We worked with something called the Orphan's Court in, in the, our justice system that kind of oversees um, the disposition of, of human remains that don't have a known uh, descendant, so to speak. So the Orphan's Court placed uh, the Muda Museum and our consortium of institutions that took on this task as the stewards of these individuals um, with the goal that we would, uh, you know, ex we excavated them. There was about 491 individuals. Um, we're storing the remains and we uh, are going to rebury them uh, in 2023. And what we were able to do is we were able to reach out to what we call the descendant community of these individuals. We knew that they were uh, buried in the First Baptist Church of Philadelphia's cemetery. And the disposition time was between 1707 and 1858. And uh, so we were able to actually reach out to the church uh, that is was still in uh, operation at the time. And so we reached out to the representatives of the church and we said, we have these individuals. Uh, what we Here's what we would like to do. Uh, we would like to rebury them. But before we do that, we would like to do some um, scientific analysis of these individuals. And we would actually like to do uh, the DNA analysis of these individuals um, for many reasons to learn to learn a little bit more about them, but also ultimately so that when we do rebury them, uh, hopefully what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to uh, bury entire generations of families in, in one specific uh, area. So bury them together because again, 1707 to 1858, there were multiple generations of families buried buried there. But uh, so the descendant, uh, descendant community were they granted us the permission to. Uh, to do these types, to do this type of research. And one of the things that I wanted to look at was dental calculus. And the reason I wanted to do that is that even though we were granted the permission to do destructive analysis on bone to, to get DNA, um, calculus sampling is considered non-invasive. I mean, it's destructive in the sense in that it will um, destroy the calculus sample, but the, the calculus itself is not um, human remains per se. It is the accretion of mineralized um, uh, tartar on your teeth. Uh, but what's interesting is in that accretion is lots of DNA, lots of your DNA from like epithelial cells, saliva, things like that. So I was very interested in getting samples of this dental calculus in order to do um, some very specific research. And what I was very interested in is something called the microbiome. So your oral microbiome, and that is um, all of the bacteria, viruses, yeast, all of that, uh, those living organisms that populate your gut and that we have, we're doing more and more research on uh, that it is very, very important in our, in our health and our well-being and, and everything. Um, it's very interesting in that about uh, not what is something along the lines of nine out of 10 cells that are physically present in or on your body are actually not your own. It's your microbiome. Uh, and if you were to take away all of the microbiome, uh, you know, from your, from your body, you would be three pounds lighter and, you know, and also dead, which is very interesting. Um, 
so again, you know, just to kind of go through this quickly, what we were able to do is we were able to um, collect the calculus samples. We were able to process them and get the DNA of the microbiome. And uh, it was very, very, you can see here, this is a chart that um, what, this, what this chart basically indicates is that we have very good microbiome samples. because we have blanks, we have controls and things like that. So we were able to say that there was a very distinct difference between our, our blanks and the microbiome and even the soil samples that we got as well. So very, very um, good indication that we're seeing authentic microbiome. Again, this is a very big uh, chart. It's just kind of showing the different types of taxa that are present in, um, in the samples. Very exciting because we're having lots of different variety of this. And uh, we're very encouraged about, about the results. And uh, another thing is that... Uh, this whole type of research project is so exciting because we're doing something that's really cutting cutting edge. You know, microbiome uh, research is very um, relatively it's relatively new in, in that. And then, so the fact that we have this population, the fact that we have consent from the, the the descendant community, and the fact that we're getting such wonderful results just from the few that we have done is very very um, promising. And we hope to to be able to to do more and. Um, we're also getting, like I said, excellent results. There's, there's very little contamination. Um, it's just all told very, very exciting. So I, I'm, I get very excited about this. Um, you can see that, you know, I'm used to wearing PPE. I, I wear masks all, all the time at work and I got a big smile under my masks there because um, we are going to move forward with even more research. We, uh, we can get the analysis of these things from multiple sources. We can get the oral microbiome, as I mentioned, um, we have the human host biome. There's even the possibilities of getting things like food sources. Um, again, what's what's embedded in the in the uh, oral cavity of these individuals. We have soil samples, and and from this, we're able to extract all these types of of, of potential pathogens, infectious diseases, uh, to kind of understand about the the kind of overall health of this uh, population. Where and because we have such a large sample size, you know over 400 individuals, almost 500 individuals, we can do something called population level analysis, where we're able to get kind of a, a, this overview picture of the health of these individuals. So again, it's very, very exciting. Um, and so what we're going to do, the next steps that we're going to do, you know, again, this is once, we're, once we reopen, once we can kind of back, get our labs back up and get on track again, is we're going to keep moving forward with this DNA um, project. And we're also going to look at the soil samples that we collected, do some comparisons. Um, we're going to really stop and think about what questions do we want to ask. Now, so the kind of first thing we wanted to do is, can we even get the data that we need? Can we even extract the oral microbiome from this calculus? That was the first step. Now that we know that we can, okay, so many questions. Where do we start? It gets a little overwhelming sometimes. Um, but of course, you know, the last point here that I always have to have to try and stress is that we have a lot of questions. We don't have a lot of money, <laughs> probably a lot less than we even thought we did. Um, so, of course, what goes hand in hand with science is the exploration of funding. So we're hoping that our population size and our initial research will um, will bring us to the attention, you know, of, of potential funding institutions that will um give us some much needed, uh, you know, money to, to kind of continue this um, very, very important research. And then we also plan to, you know, again, reach out to other uh, similar institutions uh, to let them know that this is the kind of work that we're doing and this is the kind of results that we're getting. And we're very, very excited to, to, kind, of, to kind of 
kind of keep doing that. So one of the uh, one of the latest things that I just did uh, recently, I've got right in in late February, I was actually invited uh, down to speak at something called PACARB, the Presidential Advisory Council on Combating Antibiotic Resistant Bacteria. They really, really like acronyms in DC. So this is uh, an offshoot of HHS, Health and Human Services in the United States. And uh, they had heard, apparently somebody had heard me talking uh, to somebody else at another meeting about the microbiome research that we were doing. And so I got back to my office and I had this very odd email from this odd sounding institution that, by the way, has nothing to do with carbohydrates and bread. I was a little disappointed. Um, and they said, we heard, we, we heard about your work. Would you, would you talk in front of this, um, this, this group of individuals and see, because they were very interested in knowing how, how can, this microbiome work uh, help inform the scientific community about something that is uh, very, very serious, which is um, antimicrobial antibiotic resistant bacteria. Um, you know, right now we are very understandably directing all of our, you know, most of our resources towards combating um, uh, the coronavirus, this specific novel COVID-19. And uh, it's very important, but uh, there are other health, public health crises that have not stopped just because this one is currently going on. And one of the biggest is um, this antibiotic resistance. And uh, there, it's estimated that in the, by in the next 10 to 20 years, the number of people that will be dying globally of antibiotic resistance uh, of of antibiotic-resistant bacteria will exceed those that die of cancer. So again, not insignificant. And how can looking to the past, looking at our population, help inform medical researchers and doctors about what they could possibly do to prevent this? And so that's what I gave a talk on. And um, it, went, it went very well, and then then everything shut down. So I'm hoping to be able to uh, reach out to some of the contacts I made there and um, restart these these talks and really really try to convince people that um, these historical collections really are valuable. You know, so this is a nice quote from Dr. Andrea McCollum, and she was our is our main contact at the CDC. She's in charge of the pox and rabies branch of the CDC. And uh, she gave a nice quote to kind of really, uh, you know, let people know, especially uh, scientists and researchers. Um, here's, a, here's a funny thing I learned uh, while talking to that is I have to use different words when I talk to the museum community about um, her historical specimens. And when I talk to the modern scientific medical community, um, when I'm talking to the, the modern medical and scientific community, I don't call them historical medical specimens. I call them biorepository. I call us, we are a biorepository of historical pathogens just waiting to be accessed. So words matter, terms matter. Um, you know, I'm learning that. And that's basically my talk. Here are some of my references, um, a little my image disclosure, and here's a little bit of extra news. Um, I wanted to let everybody know here that um, I actually wrote a children's book, and that's available for pre-sale. It's going to be uh, available for wherever books are sold, I believe, around 
July 28th, but you can order them through the Mütter Museum gift store uh, right now. And I will personally sign all copies of the book that you buy through our wonderful Mütter Museum store. So that's all I have on that. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.